a lifetime of training, practice, study, hard work. Through discipline, some achieve excellence, mastery, fulfillment, self-actualization. What can we learn from their beginnings, discoveries, motivations, and falls? How do they dust themselves off and resume their journey? During these interviews, stories, and conversations, we reveal their intrinsic drive. Urban trail access began as a young boy for Ryan Chow. Growing up in Portland, Oregon, skiing, fishing, and cycling were a way of life. After architecture school, he mentored with a talented group of visionaries at the Bryant Park Revitalization Project, where he discovered his love of people over buildings, turning New York City's most dangerous park into a global model for urban green space renewal. In 2019, Ryan was elected president of the Rails to Trails Conservancy, where he oversees national leadership in trail development, policy advocacy, and movement building. Other positions as vice president of the Annie E. Casey Foundation, where he transformed neighborhoods and developed affordable housing as director of the San Francisco-based satellite housing, prepared Ryan for his current role. Ryan and his team at RTC have raised over $20 billion in federal funding, including $850 million in 2021 alone, more than doubling federal funding for walking and biking trails. Current projects include the Great American Rail Trail, a 3,700-mile cross-country route. Eight of 12 states along the route have introduced new trail segments since 2019. Ryan and his RTC team have created Trailink.com, a free online trail access app, which became an essential resource for 10.5 million users in 2021. RTC's mission is to create a nation where trails connect everyone, everywhere. We are excited to welcome this champion of environmental sustainability, community revitalization and promoter of health and wellness to this episode of Intrinsic Drive. Ryan, we really appreciate your time. You know, such a busy schedule right now, this time of year uh, with the RTC. So thank you so much for coming to Intrinsic Drive. My pleasure, Phil. Thank you. Great to be here. Let's go to your beginning, the genesis. Kind of take us into how this all started for you, uh, whether it be uh, the love of trails, whether it be um, study of architecture, planning things. Uh, what brought you into your current role here at at RTC? Yeah, well, thanks for that, Phil. And um, I think like most careers and paths, I can tell a, a story that sounds like an elegant narrative. Uh, at the time, <laughs> maybe not so much, but, but there are certain themes that have, have yeah. run through. Going way back, I grew up in Oregon, uh, in suburban Portland, and I've always had a love for the outdoors, yeah. something my parents instilled in me. And it's just part of the culture there. So I yes. um, was an avid cyclist, um, avid in, in fishing and skiing, and just loved all of the wonders that the Oregon uh, wilderness provides. That's a lot of my, I think, my personal passion. Uh, on the career side, I had first been interested in architecture and design and studied uh, architecture as an undergraduate. But there were two things that kind of shaped my path. One was that although I did fine in school, 
I realized that I'm not a God-gifted architect. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. I'm actually a fairly mediocre designer. And I felt like the world has plenty of average architects and probably didn't need another one. And then the second was that um, I found myself, even as we were studying and, and designing, more interested in the people in buildings yes. than the buildings themselves. Okay. And I went to college in, in St. Louis. And so at the same time that I was studying there, I started volunteering in communities and neighborhoods and specifically parts of St. Louis that had been disinvested and really neglected in different ways and doing things like helping to weatherize homes and help folks um, in different ways. And so that really shaped it for me in a lot of ways. That I, I wanted to do something that was more about revitalization, about, yes. um, about being of service. Early in my career, um, I was still, I think, at a stage of deciding what that all meant. And so in my first job, I worked for the Bryant Park Restoration Corporation, an organization that uh, has transformed Bryant Park from yes. um, kind of a neglected part of Midtown to truly an urban oasis. And was lucky to have people like Dan Biederman, the president, be a yeah, wonderful I'm, I, mentor. I know Dan. What a wonderful guy. He's a great guy. Yeah. 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 yeah he's, he's, he's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Um, there was another person there, uh, a man named Gerald, who was uh, on the team I worked at. Okay. I was an Oregon boy. Uh, still yeah. came to New York, uncertain of what to do, a little bit scared. And I'd shared with Gerald kind of some of these thoughts, like, which direction yeah. should I go? What's the right path? And he was my first work friend, reached out, kind of took me under his wing. And um, two things were pivotal. One was that he said, whatever you decide on, be of service. Right. Just right. find a way to be of service to other people. The second was tragically uh, that Gerald passed away about a year after I'd started uh, there. Wow. Um, and so in the process of, of kind of grieving and, and reconciling, what became clear to me was one, that was the best advice I could follow is whatever it was. Uh, one does being of service to others is a is an important thing to to craft in your life path. The other one is that life's short, yeah, and you only live once. And so for me, it's been as simple as um, recognizing that we can follow a YOLO type of yes. a path. We live only once, um, yeah. and why not try to make the big, biggest difference we can. And so that's been my path in different ways, but I think always focused on transforming environments to be of service to people, trying to bring joy, access, opportunity, wherever I can make that contribution. That's 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 wonderful. And Ryan, in the ascent, like when did you feel yourself rising in this sort of craft of of service? What was what was the next step after the Bryant Park project? Was it the um, going to the Annie Casey Foundation? Was that the next step for you, or what was next after that? I maybe the next pivotal one. So I was in New York then for some some years later and doing okay. different. Um, different forms of community development work. Yeah. Um, I decided, though, after eight years, um, I got married while I was there in New York, and we relocated to the San Francisco Bay Area. Okay. Uh, my family's from Portland, as I said. Much of my yeah. wife's family is from Los Angeles. We okay. wanted to be geographically close, but that neutral, makes perhaps. That makes sense. The, yeah, the neutral is good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and had the privilege to work for an affordable housing organization, Satellite Housing, First, um, as the director of housing development, eventually as the executive director and CEO. And there had a chance to, uh, for me, do another form of, um, of service and of revitalization 
developing and providing affordable homes for low-income seniors, families, and people with disabilities. And so that was a chance for me to, um, one, I think, make a, a difference, even in a small way, around an issue that is so complex and challenging, especially there, yes. and to begin to kind of develop and, and have the chance to be um, uh, growing leadership skills in different forms. Yeah, and, and and it feels like you're you're now okay. How old are you at this point, and what what kind of event made that path clear to you that okay this this type of work in advocacy of of building community, you know, obviously there's different vehicles through the thread of your life, but what what point in your life that this was clear? Now, what how old were you at this point? Well, still fairly young. So yeah. I started, I guess, in my late twenties. Wow. Um, yeah. I honestly, I think after that early experience, I've done different things, worked yes. in more sectors, lived in more places than I expected. Yeah. <laughs> but I felt I've been blessed to, I feel, uh, to have never questioned the direction. Yeah, that's that, right. Um, some form of, and I think of this all as community development, yes, some yes. form of, of transforming the built environment in ways that bring access and opportunity. That's kind of my biggest passion. Um, yes. I didn't know all the different ways that would manifest, but right. uh, it also kind of called on my architecture background. I was able to be Absolutely. in some ways kind of an, an armchair designer and drive architects crazy without <laughs> having to be the one designing, perhaps. Um <laughs> But to your question, Phil, on age, at the time I started in the CEO role, I was 31. Okay. So pretty young for that role. Um, I also had my, we had our first daughter who was three months old. So um, I think I aged pretty quickly from that. A good amount of life change and responsibility that are coming at an an earlier stage of my life. That makes total sense. And and what about the kind of the discoveries we call it in the show you mentioned some mentors like your team leader that passed on at Bryant Park and Dan Biederman and what other kind of mentors coaches and teachers sort of what was revealed from them at this point were there anything that comes to mind yeah so one thing I've always tried to do is to do some form of in-service learning regardless of what I've done Yes, And so I actively have sought out different fellowships or leadership programs. Um, and I was privileged to have done the Achieving Excellence in Community Development Program that NeighborWorks and Harvard University sponsored. Harvard. Oh, wow. I did a fellowship with the Annie Casey uh, Foundation as well. So um, I was able to kind of access other thought leaders, other professional coaches. A woman named Mario Kelly was, was a terrific coach and mentor to me. So I was, I kind of created a network around myself that was complementary to my immediate professional network. That's great. And to me, I think what was really helpful, and this is a, um, was a learning from the professors, uh, Ron Heifetz and Marty Linsky at Harvard, uh, who wrote this seminal book called Leadership on the Line. Yes. I've heard and one thing that, that, yeah, it's terrific. And one thing that they advise is that it's important to have allies. And whatever you do professionally, people who you can partner with and uh, ultimately uh, count as, as colleagues in advancing some important issue. But it's just important to have confidants. And that's to have people who are um, supportive of you, 
and maybe have nothing to do with what you do at work. Maybe don't even care about work. Right, right. right. <laughs> and what you do, all the better. Yeah. And that um, you have folks who are there just to support you, just to be there for you and to be sounding boards. Yep. And uh, whether that was peers in the, um, the Casey Fellowship or just friends or other things, I've, I really took that seriously. That, yeah, that makes you know, sense. To bring issues and challenges to folks. And their only kind of interest is you. There's no conflict of interest. And it's a way to really right. maybe get kind of almost free therapy in certain ways. Yeah, big disclosure, uh, the freedom to explore also problems and uh, things that are happening emotionally with all the stress of being a leader uh, that you're coming into at a very early age. Um, that love this. Uh, what about drives, Ryan? What kind of, at that time, urged you forward? What were some of the external and internal forces and motivations during this time in your life? Well, I think some of it was working on an issue that was just so clear and present of its urgency. That, yeah. And of course, this is now spread nationally in terms yeah. of a, a housing crisis that um, is so acute that for many people, depending where they lived, uh, if they're work, live, earning anything around the minimum wage, they would have to work 100 plus hours in a week, almost more hours in a week than exist, simply to afford the average market rate uh, apartment. Yeah. yeah. So I think some of that was environmentally. It was just it was in your face. Whether that yeah. was just you know the rate of homelessness, the rate of challenge, yes. uh, the fact that many people in that area have to essentially drive till they can afford, and that can be hours and hours away. That's right. Um. So I think that was that was a, a lot of it, and then in some ways the real uh, powerful part of that work was that we were working on an issue that was in the abstract, so kind of uh, yeah. existential. Yeah, theoretical. But we were yeah. also able to serve people and be there for them when they when they needed it and really form relationships. So um, I think I was privileged to do kind of state-level policy work. And at the same time, and we moved our headquarters into an affordable housing community, go next door and, um, you know, literally catch up with folks who um, – we're living in our housing and be able to talk about it. not only just what was going on in their daily lives, but what having safe, stable, decent housing meant for them in terms of just having a basic and decent quality of life. So you're not removed. You're not in some, you know, theoretical off in just policy alone. You're right on the ground being able to connect directly to the people that needed it the most. And I think that's, that speaks a lot to, to that pro process. Ryan, in, in, in a fall, we talk about in the show sort of speed bumps along the journey or lowest moments. Is there a inciting moment or moment or point in time that you can remember that was sort of a major event for you as a low moment, career or life? Hmm. Well, I'll answer one that is uh, maybe kind of wonky. So <laughs> no decide if it's, if it's a good fit, Yeah. but, um, so it'd be a bit wonky, but in, in the state of California, one of the main ways that affordable housing was built was through the redevelopment agency system. This mm -hmm. is state funding that would go oh. to counties, municipalities, and would support all types of important uh, developments, including affordable housing. And it was kind of a bread and butter for, um, for providing the basic needs in the community. Um, when Governor Brown came into office, um, he killed the program. 
And Mm -hmm. um, it was ultimately we recovered as a um, as an industry, but it was a time when the need was so acute and so challenging. And many folks who we assumed to be champions were in part part of really cutting off that ability to serve that need and requiring in some ways a whole 180 and how um, how we serve that need. So, I mean, you know, I think there were choices, there are trade-offs that had to be made when it came to just state budgeting. But I will say it was a disappointment at a time when um, we felt like it was one of the most important issues to be faced and I don't think was recognized as such. And it was just cut off like that just because of of Brown and the administration there. Well, there's there's lots that goes into it in different ways, but... um, yeah, that that was a decision that was yeah. that was made yeah. by the governor. And what and and how did you at that point pivot? You know, what from that low moment, you know, uh, was the project? Did you were you switching to another project or another field shortly after, or what kind of steered you back on course or turned you around after that? Well, and, and I'll say this is just me, so I have only a yep. tiny part in that. But yep. I think that if there was a, a silver lining, it was that the housing community, I think, needed to be better aligned, needed mm-hmm. to make a stronger case as to the urgency of the issue. And as developers, I was a developer and a service provider, needed to be more active in state policy okay. in terms of, kind yep. of, you know, really the laws and the, the structures. And so... Well, it was in some ways motivated by need. I think what was good to see, and this motivated me and many others, was essentially the sector upping their game in terms of being more of a force uh, in Sacramento, making the issue more clear and present to individuals and voters so that politically, you know, this is one that was in some ways irrefutable. Um, and ultimately, as much as I might lament that challenge, the challenge in some ways uh, created a whole degree of different degree of political will. Yeah. And certainly in California and many other places, um, you know, where you see this crisis not just affecting low income people, but the average person, I think now, um, you know, to, to be in some ways kind of mindful of needs, you have to pay attention to housing affordability as a bedrock part of the policy platform. Yeah. So it was sort of, uh, there's a lot of, um, of really good awareness that came from that, from that decision that rolled into making it more of a precedent across the board. It seems like to me. Yeah. 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 I'd say so. Um, In the rollback, if we, if you had the opportunity, what would you redo or do differently in your life? If anything at all, from some of these experiences? Yeah, honestly, I would say, I mean, I was one of, of many, many uh, housing providers. So I had, I was affected amongst others. I think maybe just being more proactive around solidarity. And I think this is a challenge when you're doing anything that involves real estate and kind of yep. finite resources that often, I think many of us affordable housing providers who were all friends often saw kind of the biggest challenges competing with each other mm-hmm. for sites, for resources, for anything else, as opposed to, I think, paying more more attention to kind of the bigger issues where unity solidarity was needed just to kind of make the pie bigger and the opportunity bigger for everyone. 
that makes sense. No, without question. And if if we had to go to a, the anvil, kind of a, a an event or decision that forged you, Ryan, that that sort of helped you to do all the amazing things that you've been able to do since joining joining the Rails to Trails Conservancy in 2019. I mean, it's just been groundbreaking, uh, staggering. Look at all that you've been able to to leverage in terms of this, which I want to get into the Great American Rail Trail that's coming and and all the advocacy for getting us on the trails. Um what do you what do you see as as an event that forged you during these experiences leading up to to now? Well that's I think pretty simple and, and not unique. It, it was the pandemic. Yeah. Okay. And wow. Yeah. yeah for for as harrowing and tragic as it was and it, it absolutely was yes and i do think um well we need to move forward we also it's important we don't forget all right. that we went through and the lessons that um that we should still be learning from it but um the pandemic was a it was a pivotal moment for the trails walking and biking sector um yeah, as an organization, we've been very successful. I can talk more about our history, but in creating multi-use trails all across the country, 25,000 miles of rail trails, 40,000 miles of multi-use trails wow. in cities, towns, all across America. But I think to some degree, our biggest challenge was uh, making folks understand that these aren't just nice amenities to have. They're really, really important That's right. when it comes to the wellness of, of people and communities. So when the when the pandemic um, came on in March of 2020, and things were locked down, we all didn't know what was coming the next day, and I think right. we were facing physical challenges, mental challenges, um, emotional challenges. People sought some way to get away from that, That's and exactly trails right. were the place that many many people turned. What we saw nationally was a 50 percent increase in trail use across the country. Fifty percent. Um, that went uh, it went up two hundred percent in March, and then settled somewhat. But essentially, fifty percent more people were out on trails. Many, many more. Many of them uh, finding places right in their own backyards That's right. that they didn't even know about as ways That's to right. get out. And and I think importantly, get out but be safe and be, That's be right. connected with nature. That's right. Uh, we have an an app uh, called Trail Link, which is I, I use it. To yeah, every week. Yeah, I love it. Yep. Yeah, I'm a member. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 a great it's a great resource, and it's a way for people to find trails near them or find trails they want to travel to, and then know about them, know the experience. Uh, prior to the pandemic, the, we had around seven million users per year. In 2020, 2021, we had ten and a half million people. Ten and a half. Yeah. Use Trail Link. Um, so we saw just this huge surge in, in in usage, but I think what's really important is that if you look at a lot of social movements or just big seismic changes, there's usually a change in attitudes that happens over some time, and then a change in behaviors happens over some time. Uh, what happened with, with the pandemic was that that change in attitudes and behaviors about the importance of safe outdoor activity they happened simultaneously and almost yeah. overnight. That's right. right. Like there was just this That's realization right. that yeah. I need to get outside. I need to take care of myself. And here's a way to do it safely. So, yeah, that was the that was the huge moment. And I think what is 
for all of those challenges, what is, I think, re really reassuring and was pivotal for our movement was that we were able to take those changes in, in behaviors and will and translate that into results for, for the people and for communities. And what ultimately lined up was that while the pandemic continued, there was a chance to um, ultimately secure significantly more funding to build more trails and active transportation infrastructure. That ended up being in the form of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. And uh, we had essentially a once in a generation increase in commitment in investing in trails, walking and biking, essentially doubling the federal program that pays for this infrastructure from 750 million to 1.3 billion annually. Whoa. A huge, okay. yes. a huge advocacy win. And that's been then paired with, with all kinds of other investments, other federal funding. We're seeing states all across the country now reprioritize what they invest in and investing in trails and active transportation infrastructure. And I think that's just what's been uh, really rewarding and um, in many ways, I think the, the kind of the gratitude for being of service was that we had this moment, people needed this resource, they turned to it, and ultimately that created a whole new environment of political and public will to actually make this a part of every community in a way that is just not a way to, to go out and be active, but ultimately to connect to your community, to connect to other people and places. No, it's 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 so remarkable. I remember watching a video uh, of a gentleman was the uh, mayor of uh, Greenville, South Carolina, and realized that this trail is the thoroughfare that connects these two cities, the city, the neighboring city to Greenville, 23 miles. And not seeing it as a, a recreational add-on, but as a as a real viable way to cut emissions, to uh, to cut uh, hospitalizations, uh, if you think about it, syndrome X, Y, and Z, all these lifestyle conditions uh, are coming from lack of being healthy. And th this yeah. is such an easy way. You, you don't have to do one thing on it. You know, you're 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 a Nordic skier, right? So in the winter, you 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 can cross country ski, and and we can cycle, and we can bike and hike, and in in as you said, safety is is such a a huge thing as as we we see in Belgium, where uh, there's all these trails because of the uh, cycling accidents, and and this is a way to do it safely, and and it's just a remarkable um, the the amount of uh, of 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 funding that you were able to 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 secure at that. Now, tell us about this Great American Rail Trail. This is so exciting. Is you know thirty seven uh, hundred miles right or plus uh, across from Washington State uh, District District of Columbia where you are. Um, tell us the genesis of that. It was that the two nineteen two thousand nineteen project that was started when you came into uh, RTC. Well, it was launched. It certainly wasn't started okay. at all. This was okay. a project decades in the, in the making. And that makes sense. Let me talk about it. And then I'd love to return back a little bit to just some of kind of what you just touched on, like the yes. kind of uniqueness of trails and, yes. and all the different types of uses. Please do. But yeah, let's talk about the, the Great American Rail Trail. So we were formed in 1986, and we didn't create the, the concept of converting disused railroad corridors into multi-use trails. But we took it to scale. 
and we created many of the funding, the legal programs that have made possible what we talked about, 25,000 miles of them all around the country. And um, in the 1990s, leading into the 2000s, and this predates me, this is not something that I can take credit for, but as we start, start to see trails appear all over and we map them first just on a big paper map <laughs> that's great <laughs> like that's literally great. with yeah, little yeah. squiggles <laughs> ultimately we, we created this this uh database yeah. uh, first really for strategy and advocacy um and that ultimately that's what ended up leading to trail link was having okay. this the most authoritative database on where trails are that we eventually found a way to really benefit the, the general public that makes sense okay so um yeah so as as trails started to really proliferate, we mapped them, the idea was developed that someday there might be a route that would be 50% complete across the country. Okay. Who knows? Someday, yeah. decades in the future. Yeah. If that ever materialized, then we did help to kind of shape where those might go. Um, the a priority should be to connect those into a contiguous route that spans the country. And so as rail trails, multi-trails continue to, to grow and, and um, be present all over the country, that became more and more possible. And then in 2016, we started to see a route appear. And then we decided as an organization, let's go for it. Let's yeah. connect these trails mm -hmm. and let's bring to the country an iconic piece of infrastructure, a gift to the country, and essentially the first way that you could span the whole country fully protected from traffic from Washington, D.C. to Washington State. Phenomenal. So, yeah, so that's what we launched in 2019. Um, I can take credit only for being here when it launched and then helping to advance it forward since. But I think what's quite exciting is that it's a huge project. It's going to, you know, it's going to take all kinds of things to happen. But the work is really uh, closing gaps between some of the country's most iconic trails to ultimately make this pathway through 12 states, the District of Columbia. And I think what's really going to make the difference is now all of these additional investments that are available, um, this greater public will, and things are starting to advance pretty quickly. Um, we were just over 50% complete in 2019. Recently, we hit 54% complete. 54, okay, and, that's right. Your um, website says yeah. that now. Yeah, that's great, yep. We're, we're getting there. And I think what's really neat is as we see, especially in the East, many of these gaps close that we predict in uh, not too many more years from now, you can get from Washington, D.C., all the way through the state of, of Indiana to Illinois, all of that without being um, without uh, separated from traffic the whole right. way. Like you can already traverse almost the whole East and the Midwest on bike or foot in any way you choose. And there's only like two state gaps, right? Illinois, and then there's another, maybe Idaho, or I forget what the other state gap was that sort of is illuminated on that schematic that you have on the website now. And I guess there's 80 trail gaps, but there's 150 that are completed. Um, and so that's phenomenal. That's right, yeah. The, the biggest gaps are in Wyoming and Montana. Okay, okay. Where historically, there just have been fewer railroads. Yeah. So there's, there's more to convert. And um, in other states, there are smaller gaps, but I think those are closing rapidly to the point where we're getting close to contiguous on the whole eastern side. It's so exciting. And there was one story about, I think it was Bozeman, Montana, where there was just a simple uh, connector that they had just with maybe last year or the year before 
a mile and a half that connected two major trails to link them. So now they have that. So there's because of this advocacy, because of this awareness, the state municipalities are coming together and say, look, this is connecting people also to Main Street. This is an ecotourism uh, as well that can really make our uh, place more vibrant as people are, uh, baby boomers are getting older, realizing mobility issues, realizing they can see a lot through cycling uh, and they need to be in a safe zone uh, so that they don't have any interplay of, uh, of accidents from cars and things. So they're protected. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. And I think it's uh, what's really neat about rail trails of any distance is you can experience them just in an afternoon or for a few hours right. if you want to go out and fill your, I know you're lucky to be near one just to do a, a quick ride. Yeah. Um, for longer distance trails, you can do multi-day excursions that connect you with small towns, with scenic um, experiences and, and nature. And for those communities, it's meant substantial reinvestment in many places, places we call trail towns that yes. in some ways have suffered with the, the rails being discontinued, but have been revitalized by tourism and, and visitation. And part of that is that, uh, especially for bike tour tourism, um, you can only bring so much on a bike. That's right. And so <laughs> if right. you're touring on a bike, you need stuff, right? You need a That's place right. to stay, you need, you need food. And so That's right. bike tourists often bring more uh, economic investment and spend more time and connect more with, with communities than people traveling by car in other modes. Yeah, I was just this past Sunday, I wanted to tell you, I was just in, um, met a friend uh, for lunch and before that went on a run, 11 mile run on the Columbia River Trail. And it was so fantastic because they have a new interpretive center that talks about the history and the geology there. And you can, uh, you know, parking in bathrooms and it just it has a really uh, beautiful new build out. And then Along the trail, you can go up, uh, it started there in, in Columbia, and then you can go go up and up all the way to Falmouth, and every half mile is marked. But more importantly, there's markers for all the services in the town. And you notice that, uh, you know, there's a there's a pizzeria and a brew pub, and and, and there's things, and, and you're connecting all these resources because you, you obviously can't tra- take too much stuff on a bike, and there's people that are only have time uh, for, for an hour or two hours. So there's access for everyone. It's just, it's very inclusive in in that way. Well, that's right. And and just speaking about access and inclusion, a lot, some of what we learned during the pandemic was that uh, while trails are are common in many places, that there's work to be done to make sure that everyone feels welcome and included. So I think that was an important lesson that, um, you know, whether it's, it's people of color or low income communities, there's work to be done to make sure there's equal access, equal distribution of, of trails uh, for certain. And at the same time, trails are in many ways the most accessible form of outdoor recreation that we have. And I think that was really vital during that pandemic, that it was the place people turned, and especially rail trails, because yes. trains they don't like to go up and down steep things. That's right. And they yeah. like to go right. <laughs> they like to go from community to community. So there's something really magical about what rail trails do, which is they're very gentle and great. They're often wide. They're usually accessible by population centers. And so what you see in many ways is the whole range of society and of users from, you know, very hardcore cyclists and standards to that's right. 
to the elderly folks who are maybe you know, using an electric bicycle or That's walking right. to people in wheelchairs. Um, That's right. It's in many ways the, the place where people meet that you just don't see often in American life. No, I just I, I love the cross section and and what you talked about is the the, the re- revitalization too. Like we notice a town like Connellsville, PA, where now there's a uh, there's a hotel that's right there. There's a comfort in that's it's you know outside has all the you know the bike racks and they can put their bikes inside and even a little lounge area there and it's at a perfect spot along that Great Allegheny Passage that. The reference of of starting in Pittsburgh, people do, and then they go all the way to the District of Columbia. That three hundred fifty miles, isn't it? I mean, it's it's definitely one on 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 my list for my wife and I to do. And it's because we do little sections of it to, from here in PA, and it's just it's it's so breathtaking to go along those rivers, and and it's 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 very forgiving, as you said. It's just a gentle grade, mm-hmm. uh, and and it, any level of activity. Uh, you don't have to be a pro- professional athlete or someone with an athletic background. Uh, like you said, you see people in uh, recumbents and, and wheelchairs and, and all just walking and just enjoying uh, the nature and the green space. It was so remarkable for me to hear because I read that article in the BBC that I know went viral. And I think it was December, 2020, that 200%, you referenced it earlier in the interview, 200% more people coming to use uh, these trails uh, over the pandemic. And I think, uh, and, and that's really huge that people realized, okay, I've got to get outside and I've got to be in a safe space and and, and, and move. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not just nice to have or to do. Right. It's fundamental. It's fundamental. And, and, and Ryan, for you and your journey, um, what's most important to you now for, for you, for, for the work you're doing at, at RTC? I mean, what does the road ahead look like for you and what's next? Yeah. Um, well, I guess on the, on what's for me, um, I mentioned some of kind of formative experiences in my early, early days and time. Yes. Um, there's a quote I try to follow that's a little less serious. And it's Oscar Wilde who said that life is too important to be taken seriously. <laughs> and I love that quote yeah. because it's it's not that life, you know, it's not that things aren't serious or that you should you should really be committed to what you do. It's in fact the opposite, that because life is serious, we should also enjoy ourselves. That's right. And you know, find passion and joy in what we do. So that might be one. I try to remind myself it's hard when things are stressful or things are busy. Yeah. But, you know, as I've related some of my my professional experiences, I'm just blessed to be in a role that combines what I'm passionate about when it comes to mission with what I'm passionate about personally when it comes to the outdoors and activities. So um, regardless of what you do, and I realize I'm really, really privileged that it's easier for me to find joy and um, and reward in a way that simply just enjoy the, the fun parts of it. From a professional or organizational perspective, um, I've said this often with, with friends and with staff that um, although we are maybe moving out of the pandemic, we're, the next change is upon us. Yes. And so to me, it feels like there's a new crisis every three months. The world is different every six months, perhaps. But for right. the trails, walking, and biking movement, for the environmental movement, 
there's tremendous opportunity for continued change. And I think for me, some of that is just realizing kind of what's continuing to change and unfold, whether that's extreme weather events, that's soaring gas prices, that's streets clogged with traffic, that I think we're, po we're poised for a moment of transformational shift when it comes to just how we, we travel, how we view transportation in this country. And you know, we've talked a lot about using trails, walking and biking for recreation. And that's awesome. And I think in some ways we undervalue the power of recreation, the power to kind of recreate our experience in different ways. But I think as a country, I think we're ready to really consider transportation alternatives in a way that's um, really serious and in some ways at a population level. Yes. Um, some of that is, I think, how we're investing in this country, the infrastructure we're creating. But it's simply, I think, just looking at, at habits and choices. In this country, um, half of all trips that are taken by a car are within a 20-minute bike ride. One quarter of all trips that are taken by car are within a 20-minute walk. Wow. Okay. So yeah. much of what we do, much the way we use vehicles, is we use them in a way in ways that are uh, we could be swapping them to walk or bike or do something that's better for the environment, but also just better for ourselves. Um, and, and we've done some calculation of this in that if you were to really swap these these short trips, you could do substantial things. You could offset 13 metric tons of carbon dioxide each year that goes from vehicular emissions. You could return, we calculate as much as 70 billion to the economy when it comes to health savings and economic investment. So to me, that's, I think, the thing that's really promising, really exciting, is that we're at a moment where I think we're rethinking lots of things. Yeah. And we're also, I think, trying to not go back to all the things that we found challenging. And um, to me, there's, there's nothing that's kind of more personally rewarding, better in your own individual way, than just you know, getting out from behind a windshield and finding a more healthy, more rewarding way to get around. Yeah, there's too many wins for us not to do it. We we sort of we have to do it to, to save the planet, to save ourselves. And uh, you know, you're a living testimony of that. In the days that you commute in, uh, I'm excited. I want to come and and commute into D.C. with you. I think it's fabulous. Uh, even though it takes a little longer, you're investing that in your time and and, and environment and and. Uh, uh, practicing what you preach there. If we look at the slipstream, Ryan, you know, kind of looking back in the rearview mirror of your life, are there any parting gems of advice you'd like to leave for us today? Hmm. Well, I think I might just pass along advice I've been given before. And I think one of those is that whatever you choose to do, find a way to be of service. Find a way, whether that's in your, your job, in your civic life, um, in whatever form that is. And there's something, I just heard this on the, on the news, just kind of walking through our living room. But there's some recent data that's come out about essentially the mental health benefits of being generous. Yeah. And that it's not only just, you know, obviously something kind to do, but it's just good for yourself, right? Yes. And I, I think the more that one can fashion a path where they are uh, doing something that is making a difference better, bigger than themselves, it's good for themselves as well. 
Um, that might be the first thing. I guess the other two things that, that are on my mind. Secondly, is just um, family, whatever family looks like to you. Yes. Always put family first. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. A lesson that we didn't talk about much, but for me was a big one through the pandemic was just um, in the, it makes you think about what's important. Who do you really want to spend time with and protect? That for me was a big one. It's huge. Um, family, family first always. Yes. And then the third one, I think kind of related to some of what we've talked about. But um, I think in this country, we undervalue recreation, we undervalue hobbies, we undervalue just other ways to find balance. Mm -hmm. And um, for me, even the term hobbies kind of trivializes something that I think is important to find whatever you do, make meaning of it. And a word I prefer is our passions. Yes. Find your passion, um, do it in a way that uh, hopefully can be part of a bigger community in certain ways. And um, walking and biking is a pretty good one. But <laughs> That's pretty whatever good. Whatever you choose to do. Yes. Yeah. Consider that not just a, a side gig, but something that's just vital to, I think, being a whole person. I love this, Ryan. And and um, speaking of, of generosity, it just comes back to, uh, I just want to urge you all on, on the show, listeners, uh, to donate to this wonderful, wonderful Rails to Trails Conservancy and, and the things that they're doing to helping bring our cities together, make things more environmentally conscious, but also making us healthier as a as a culture. So, um, so Ryan, thank you so much for taking your time to coming to the show and uh, keep on doing the great work, being of service, but but having fun in the process, as Oscar Wilde said, please. Thank you, Phil. It's, it's been a real joy. Uh, I love your podcast, and, and it's an honor to participate. And I look forward to uh, riding on a trail with you sometime. I know we're not too far apart. You're on. It's a date. Thanks for being with us. We appreciate you opting in, subscribing, and reviewing us for thumbing us up and following us on socials, liking us, we like you. Drop us a note. Tell us what stories move you. For books, videos, resources, and more information, visit us at whartonhealth.com forward slash shop Wharton Health. And be sure to join us for the next episode of Intrinsic Drive.